11. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. The text, it reads like this. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more will we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us now clearly through your word that we might adore and praise Jesus, the King of love. We pray for those in this room who are believers that we would do that for the 100th time. And again, we pray for those who are unbelievers that they might do that for the first time even today. Let there be adoration. Let there be worship and praise and the prizing of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. During the Second World War, there was a British soldier by the name of Ernest Gordon, who was taken as a prisoner of war. He and his fellow prisoners were forced to build what he described as a railroad of death. It transported the Japanese troops into the battle. And in his book, Through the Valley of the Kwai, he recounts a, a dramatic story of personal sacrifice. At the end of each workday, the Japanese soldiers would count the shovels of the POWs. And on one day, one of the Japanese soldiers declared that a shovel was missing. So he gathered the POWs and he ordered the guilty soldier to step forward. No one did. Everyone stood still. Until eventually this soldier loaded his rifle and shouted, all die. And at that moment, a prisoner of war stepped forward and calmly declared, I did it. He was clubbed to death, but later that night, the prisoners counted the shovels. And what they discovered is that all were accounted for, not one 
was missing. Sacrifice is the evidence of love. We put our series in Ephesians on hold for one week today to look at Romans chapter 5 verses 6 to 11. If you have your Bible, do make sure it's open at that place. And the point of this passage is the cross proves God's love. The cross proves God's love. Now before we look at these verses, allow me to say by way of introduction that as we approach Romans, we approach nothing less than the Mount Everest of the New Testament. Romans is Paul's magnum opus. Someone said this, no reasonable person would dispute that the book of Romans is one of the most powerful and influential books ever written. The epistle of Paul to the Romans has been the written force behind some of the most significant conversions of church history. St. Augustine, the most brilliant theologian of the early centuries, came to conviction of sin and salvation after reading some verses from the 13th chapter. Martin Luther recovered the doctrine of salvation by faith from his study of Romans 1.17 and went on to lead the Protestant Reformation. And while listening to the reading of Luther's preface to the book of Romans, John Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed in conversion and became the catalyst of the great evangelical revival of the 18th century. John Bunyan was so inspired as he studied the great themes of Romans in the Bedford Jail that he wrote the immortal Pilgrim's Progress. And undoubtedly, you have your story of how God met with you in and through the book of Romans. It's fascinating. Paul had actually never met the people to whom he addressed this letter. Uh, he was thought to be on his third missionary journey in the city of Corinth in Greece in AD 57. And by the time we come to chapter 5, Paul has established the fact that all men, all women, are sinners before the face of God but that God has provided a savior in Jesus Christ. Through faith in him alone, Paul argues, a person is not only forgiven, but declared righteous before God. And in the verses immediately before our verses today, Paul celebrates, he revels, in so many of the blessings and the privileges that belong to those who have been justified by faith in Christ alone. He says, we have peace with God. He says, we have access into God's grace. He says, we even have hope in our sufferings because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And in our passage today, Paul will ground that experience of God's love being poured into our hearts with the historical reality of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's as though having spoken of God's love being poured into our hearts, he then says, and here is the message that brought God's love streaming into our hearts. Here is the news that caused 
God's love to cascade into our souls, to fill our souls the way an avalanche would fill with snow a coffee mug, the way a, a tidal wave would fill a child's bucket with water on Hoylake Beach. Dr. John Stott said this, he said, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. And the cross kindles our fire of love for God because the cross is the proof of God's love for us. And so as we prepare to look at this passage today, full of the truth of the cross, allow me to ask you this, how aware are you? How amazed are you? How humbled, how overjoyed are you today in the knowledge of God's love for you shown and proven at the cross of Jesus Christ? From whatever the answer to that question in your life is, let me say this, Romans 5, 6 to 11 is able to rekindle your love for God Romans chapter 5 verse 6 to 11 is able to, to draw us like moths to the flame of the blazing fire of the cross of Christ. And may God be pleased then to pour his love into our hearts today and to pour his love into your heart today if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian. The cross proves God's love. And today we're going to ask two simple questions. The first is this, for whom? And number two, what follows? Number one, for whom? And look with me, friends, at Romans 5 verses 6 to 8 again. Paul writes there, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross proves God's love for whom? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question using four words. And these four words describe who we once were before we were believers. They describe who you now are if you're here and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross, says Paul, proves God's love, number one, for the weak. Verse six, for while we were still weak. Not physically weak, but morally weak. That is powerless to deal with the corruption that rots our souls from the inside out. The, the cross proves God's love furthermore for the ungodly. Verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And by this point in the letter of Romans, Paul has already painted a damning description a damning portrait of what it is to be ungodly. But the horror of horrors is that when Paul turns the portrait around, it turns out to be my portrait and your portrait because by nature, we are all those who want nothing to do with God. But the cross 
proves God's love for the weak, for the ungodly, and for sinners. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God proved his love for those who by nature habitually miss the mark of God's moral perfection. And what's more, the cross also proves God's love for his enemies. That's the word that he uses to describe us all the way down in verse 9. And so you put it all together and here's what you get. The cross proves God's love for those who have turned their backs on his majesty, suppressed his truth in unrighteousness, who have blinded their eyes to his glory, who have rolled their eyes at the mention of his name, have smirked at the idea of his existence, prided themselves on the breaking of his law, seared their consciences, and who, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and exchanged the worship of the immortal creator God for created things resembling birds and animals and creeping things or whatever else there is in this world. So that although we are the ones who are described in verse 9 of our passage as being enemies of God, the enmity was faced, was experienced and felt on both sides. We were at enmity toward God and God was at enmity toward us in our sin. Nevertheless, Paul writes, God proves his love for men and women such as these at the cross of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is how? How does the cross prove God's love for anything? I've told you before that growing up, that was my question. I had the privilege of growing up in a, in a God-fearing, Bible-believing, church-going home. And every Sunday night in our church, the service was really intended for unbelievers. And so I grew up hearing all about the cross on a regular basis. But before I think I reached even double digits, I knew in my heart that I wasn't a Christian because the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was nothing more than a maze of confusion to me. Well, friends, to understand the cross, we really have to understand who God is. The cross will make no sense to us at all until we understand what kind of a God we're dealing with here. And the Bible declares that God is holy. That is, he is separate, he is distinct, he is set apart, he is cut off against all and to all that is wrong and all that is evil in the world. And what's more, God is just. And God's justice means that he must punish sin. But the Bible declares that God is also love. And therefore, God devised a way whereby he could uphold his holy character and uphold his just standards and yet save sinners 
at the same time. And that way was this. He would give His Son to bear in His body the poison of our sin and to die under the weight of His wrath against us. At the cross of Christ, God poured out the full weight of His just and holy wrath against sinners like molten lava so that the full weight of His love could be poured into us. He, Christ, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace so that by His wounds we are healed. And therefore, friends, since love is measured by sacrifice, I can assure you today that God's love for you is infinite because Jesus Christ is infinitely precious. Paul says, maybe someone somewhere at some time might die for a righteous person. Conceivably, in some hypothetical scenario, Someone might dare for a good person like a benefactor, someone like that. But God shows his love for us that is in a class altogether by itself in that while we were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. Here then is love, vast as the ocean, Loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Here is a love beyond comprehension. Here is a love that is mighty, that is forceful, forceful, a love that couldn't be deeper, that couldn't be wider, that couldn't be higher, a love that is vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. And a love that is yours if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and by faith alone. You know, when the the country that we know now as the United States was fighting us for their independence, there was someone called Peter Miller. And uh, Peter Miller was a preacher. And a few doors down from Peter Miller lived a man who uh, really abused him. Uh, He abused him verbally, and he abused him physically as well. And uh, one day it turned out that this enemy of of Miller's was found guilty of treason. He was sentenced to die by hanging. And when Peter Miller, this preacher, heard about what was to become of his enemy, he walked 60 miles to appear before George Washington, and he asked George, uh, George Washington to acquit and to release this man. Listen to what happened next. The general, Washington, listened to the minister's earnest plea, but told him he didn't feel he should pardon his friend. My friend, answered Miller, he's not my friend. In fact, he is my worst living enemy. (laughs) What? Washington said, you have walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy. 
That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I will grant your request. With pardon in hand, Miller hastened to the place where his neighbor was to be executed and arrived just as the prisoner was walking to the scaffold. When the traitor saw Miller, he exclaimed, Old Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by watching me hang. But he was astonished as he watched the minister step out of the crowd and produce the pardon which spared his life. Well, friends, our lives are spared because God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. And therefore, the cross proves God's love for the weak and for the ungodly and for sinners and for those who had made themselves his enemies. Take that in. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God got you out of your house today, got you through your front door, got you into your car, got you into this room to hear the message that has been preached to you today. And before you are two options. Option number one is for you to live in denial and for you to say, Hugh, I'm not weak, I'm strong. I'm not ungodly, I'm upright. I'm not a sinner, I'm, I'm a good person. And I'm not an enemy of God because God doesn't exist. And if he does exist, all is well between the two of us because surely he's got much more important things to be getting on with. But you know, friends, that would be like a patient in a hospital taking a pen and scribbling out the tumor that is shown on an x-ray, putting down his pen and saying, see, I'm fine. That would be like Peter Miller's enemy, standing with a, a noose around his neck, saying, I don't need George Washington's acquittal. I'm not guilty. All is well with me. That's option number one. But friend, there's a second option. There's a better option. And option number, for, number two is for you to accept what you've heard. Option number two would necessitate humbling yourself and saying, God, you know the truth about me. God, you know that I am too weak to save myself, too ungodly to earn your salvation, too sinful to merit a place in your kingdom, too opposed to you to want to be on your side, but I believe that you have loved me with a miraculous love. And that you gave your son for me. And so I fall on him. And I trust in him. And I lean on him. Body, mind, soul and strength. And receive all that he died to accomplish for me. And I receive his salvation with both hands into my heart. And friend, if you will do that today, I'll give you something better than my word. I will give you God's word. God says to you today that if you were to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, every sin that you have ever and will ever commit will be forgiven. 
And you'll be made a new creation in Christ. The old will go, the new will come. You'll be declared righteous in God's sight. The Holy Spirit will fill you and he will empower you to follow Jesus all the way to heaven. And when you arrive at heaven, the trumpets will sound for you. The gates will open to you and Jesus will speak to you with a voice like the sound of many waters. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And friend, the time for you to embrace option number two is now. Silence the voice within you that says tomorrow. Shut the mouth within you that says, when I'm good and ready. Because God says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. So right where you're sat now, turn and trust on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And if you're here and you are a Christian, perhaps when you heard me refer to God's love being poured into your heart. You would say to me today, Hugh, I'd be grateful for a drop poured into my heart right now. I'd be, I, I would take a communion-sized glass of his love for me right now because Hugh, I am as weak and I am as dry and I am as lifeless spiritually as I have ever been. I've neglected God's word. I've neglected prayer. I've neglected the fellowship of God's people. And right now, I don't even feel like I'm a Christian. But what I would say to you, friend, is this. Keep both of your eyes on the proof of God's love for you. There is a tendency within us all to look to a thousand and one worldly things in order to determine how God feels about us. Uh, we might look at our effectiveness as parents we might look at our habits, our disciplines, our spiritual disciplines, or, or whatever it is for you. But friend, the proof of God's love for you is found in none of those things. The proof of God's love is found for you right where you found it. At the cross of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the more you look at yourself, the more depressed you'll be. But the more you look at the cross, the more you'll have God's love pouring into your heart again and cascading into your soul. And that's when your assurance will blossom and your joy will abound. So friend, make it your daily habit to get both eyes, your left eye and your right eye, in the same direction at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross proves God's love. Number one, for whom? Well, we've seen for weak, ungodly sinners and for his enemies. But the next question is this, what follows? That is, what's on the horizon for those who do accept the proof of God's love for them at the cross of Jesus? Well, in verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us what the cross means for our futures. And in verse 11, Paul tells us what the cross means for our present. And so what does it mean for, what does the cross mean for the believer's future? Look again at verse 9. 
It says, it says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that is declared righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Do you, you see what Paul is doing here? He's, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying that if Christ has already done the greater thing of shedding his blood for us and declaring us righteous in his sight, then surely we can expect him to do the lesser thing of saving us from the wrath of God on the last day. And he goes on in verse 10 and he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Again, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Christ has done the greater thing of uniting two parties that at once were at enmity with one another, then he will most certainly do the lesser thing of saving us in the end. Why? How can we be sure? Well, because Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. So what does follow then? For those who have believed in the proof of God's love for them, well, here's what follows. Here's what is for them. Final salvation. Justification in the past and in the present. Glorification in the future. This is what we call the guarantee of the gospel. Where there are no question marks found. And where Paul can say that those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you know, knowing that, it makes all the difference in the present because you remember where you came from and you remember where you're going. And with that past and present perspective, you have all that you need to put one foot in front of the other. A number of years ago, I heard someone describe the Christian life or liken the Christian life to a shelf. Uh, So imagine a shelf with me. And imagine that every book on the shelf is a, is a different aspect of your life. And so one book on the shelf is your family life. Another book on the shelf is your work life. Another book on the shelf is your leisure life and your social life. All of the parents in the room just ask, what is that? And the point is that the more you keep your past justification and your future glorification together, they function like two bookends. And the more that you keep them in mind, the more that you bear them in mind, the firmer the grip becomes of these two bookends. So that even when in all of the books of our lives there's sorrow and sadness and grief and disappointment and and the storms of life, because the bookends are holding it all together, you find that you're sturdy as a believer. But the less that we keep them in mind, the further apart the bookends become. So that when the storms blow in our lives, the more the aspects of our lives are blown from left to right. Perspective is everything in the Christian life. So listen, believer, remember. Remember where you came from. And remember where you're going. Remember that you're justified now and will be glorified in the end. Remember that God declares you righteous 
And remember that God will receive you as righteous when you appear before him on the great day of judgment. But then the question is, what follows for those who reject God's salvation at the cross? And friend, without any joy or glee in my heart at all, let me say the Bible is crystal clear when it says damnation. That just as the final salvation awaits those who have believed, final damnation awaits for those who will not believe and who reject the proof of God's love for them at the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It declares they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord when he comes on that day to be marveled at by his saints and to be glorified in all who have believed. Friend, flee from the wrath to come and run to the cross of Christ. Flee from the wrath to come and run to the place where God's wrath was poured out at the cross of Jesus Christ. One of the most uh, popular holiday destinations in the U.S. used to be called uh, a place called Johnstown in Pennsylvania. And the reason it was so popular uh, is because it was situated at the bottom of uh, a mountain range. And so as families would flock to this uh, holiday destination year in and year out, they would look up and they would see this stunning, awe-inspiring mountain range that towered above them. Well, 14 miles away was a shoddily built earthenware dam that was holding in the Canamal River, which weighed in at 200 million tons. And those who were responsible for this holiday destination were told repeatedly, if you don't do something about the dam, then something is going to happen. And they sat on their hands and they did nothing. And one day it rained and the dam gave way. The Canamal River poured forward and 2,209 people lost their lives. Don't do nothing. Run to the cross of Christ. Run to the death of Jesus Christ. And Paul ends his passage here by telling us what the proof of God's love means for our present. When he writes in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And the word that's translated rejoice there, we rejoice in God, is actually better translated boast. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We boast not in ourselves, but we boast in God. Why? Because salvation is all of him and it is nothing of ourselves. If you were to ask today a member of any of the world religions, what must I do to be saved? He or she would come back to you with a list as long as her arm. Pray this many times a day. 
travel to this part of the world, give this percentage of your wealth, knock on X number of doors, eat these foods, reject these foods, keep these laws, and avoid these things over here. But friend, if you were to approach me and say, Hugh, what must I do to be saved? I would say, everything that you need to be done to be saved has been accomplished for you. You simply believe it. You receive it with empty hands, with the arms of faith. So what does it mean? What does the cross mean for our present? It means this, we boast in God. It means the ambition, the driving force, the single eye focus of our lives is to point with one finger and say, Him. He did it all. He accomplished it from beginning to end, from start to finish, and He upholds me and keeps me in the present. All of the glory is His because all of the grace is ours. There was this guy uh, a number of years ago who started to feel a bit peckish. Maybe you can relate to that right now. And he popped down to his local supermarket. He picked up a Snickers bar and he was just waiting in one of those self-serve aisles. And he was waiting to beep his Snickers bar in when he looked to his right and he saw this woman who was pushing a trolley that looked a little bit more like a lorry. Uh, She had flat screen TVs in it. She was kitting out a new house. She was doing it in style. And she parked herself right behind this guy with the Snickers bar. Well, it came for his time to pay. He beeps it in. And the moment he beeps it in, the music in the shop stops. And the manager comes out wearing a nice blazer. And he shakes his hand. And he says, congratulations, sir. You're a millionth customer. Everything that you brought to the checkout today is free. And he, and he thinks quick and he turns around and he says, darling, we won, we won. And everything that she brought to the checkout was free. Friends, picture the look on her face when she goes home and she tells her husband about what happened and he says to her, sweetheart, you must have timed that impeccably. You, you must have been working on that for weeks to place yourself right behind the million. How did you know? And she would have said, I had nothing to do with it. It was all free. It was nothing of me. And friends, isn't that what we say as well as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? I had nothing to do with it. It was all of him. It was nothing of me. And therefore, all of the glory that belongs to him, all of the boasting and all of the praise. And the more that we boast in ourselves, the more unsatisfied we'll feel because the more misplaced our boasting will be. But the more we boast in God through Christ, the more alive we'll feel because that's where the boasting belongs. In Him and to Him and for Him be all the glory. Well, friends, let us then dedicate or rededicate our lives to boasting in God and praying all the while, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Amen. Amen. Well, why don't we take a moment and